Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end, which is my line of non-toxic, family-focused personal care products, including hair care, oral care, and now deodorant. At my house, the kids' toothbrushes and the kids' strawberry toothpaste are by far the favorites. The toothbrushes come in a three-pack of fun colors, which makes it easy for my kids to know which toothbrush is whose. The strawberry toothpaste tastes great, so there aren't any fights about teeth brushing in my house, and I love that it's formulated around something called hydroxyapatite, which is a naturally occurring mineral found in tooth enamel. All of our toothpaste use only EWG verified safe ingredients, are free of toxins, and are packed with ingredients that naturally support the oral microbiome for stronger, healthier, and whiter teeth naturally. We also have a natural whitening mineral toothpaste and a charcoal toothpaste, as well as floss and toothbrushes for adults. Check out these and all of our products at wellness.com. That's W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com. This podcast is brought to you by Haya Health. That's H-I-Y-A. Typical children's vitamins are basically candy disguised. They're filled with as much as two teaspoons of sugar, unhealthy chemicals, and other gummy junk that kids really don't need. And Haya fills the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide full body nourishment with a yummy taste that kids love and without the junk. Like I said, most children's vitamins have up to five grams of sugar and they can actually cause a variety of health issues. But Haya is made with zero sugar and zero gummy junk, yet it tastes great and is perfect even for picky eaters. It's manufactured in the USA with globally sourced ingredients that are each selected for optimal bioavailability and absorption. Haya arrives straight to your door on a pediatrician recommended schedule. Your first month comes with a reusable glass bottle that your kids can personalize with stickers. And every month after, Haya sends a no plastic refill pouch of fresh vitamins, which means Haya isn't just good for your kids, it's also good for the environment. Check it out and save on your first month by going to HayaHealth.com slash wellnessmama. That's H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash wellnessmama. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com. That is wellness with an E on the end, which is my personal care line. And this episode is all about birth. I'm here with Michelle Aristizabal, who is an OBGYN in Scottsdale, Arizona, and she's actually written a book called Natural Labor and Birth, an Evidence-Based Guide to the Natural Birth Plan. She attended medical school at the University of Arizona and completed her residency training at St. Barnabas Medical Center in New Jersey. She also opened Womb Keepers Maternity Wellness Center in New Jersey, where she personally delivered 2,500 plus babies. And she's a really staunch advocate for better birth outcomes for moms and babies and extremely well-researched in that area. She is an OB who advocates for low intervention, natural birth when possible. And we go into a lot of the different things that go into this today. We talk about why, as a doctor, she supports natural birth and the resistance she runs into in doing that, Um, why doctors and patients often have trouble accomplishing a low intervention birth in some certain settings and what we can do about that the reason the C-section rate has risen so drastically in the last few decades, uh, some factors to consider when approaching birth, the real data of low intervention birth and if it is more dangerous or not, how women can advocate for themselves and what to do if you have a practitioner who's not working with you, the factors we can do to increase our chance of a natural birth, and the real stats on safety of home home birth versus hospital birth. 
She is so knowledgeable. This was such a fun conversation. I can't wait to jump in. So without further ado, let's join Michelle. Michelle, welcome. And thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to get to chat about birth and natural birth today. I haven't talked about this on this podcast in a while, and it's a topic that is very close to my heart personally, having had six kids. And I know you have a whole lot of experience in this realm, and we're going to get to go deep on a lot of topics that I think are extremely relevant, especially to pregnant moms. And I, to start off kind of broad, you are coming from the doctor side of this, and I would love to hear some of your perspective on that because I know for me, I have had kind of the gamut of birth experiences, but my first being I wanted to have a natural birth and ran into a lot of resistance I did not expect in the hospital once I got there. And I've always also thought that doctors, you don't go through all of those years of school without having a true desire to help people. And I've often wondered if doctors sometimes hit as much frustration as patients do with some of these options. So to start off kind of broad, Maybe give us your perspective on the doctor side of natural birth, especially in a hospital setting, and what kind of resistance you run into there. So I initially attended medical school at a pretty holistic medical school, the University of Arizona. They had a integrative medicine program at their medical school, and they definitely approached labor and delivery. I felt like, you know, a little, um, you know, kinder and gentler and, you know, with a little more of a natural focus than I think I certainly observed later on in my training. But once I went into training, I, I, I basically in my, my specialty training in obstetrics received no training in any low intervention natural birth techniques. So these are really, this is really an area that I entered into after my training, really because I saw a need that this is something that mothers wanted, and I didn't really have the tools to offer it to them. So I began learning about it. But as to, as to the why it's not available, I, you know, I think, I think it's really, there's a lot of different things going on. One most doctors complete their residency in big tertiary care centers that are high risk with a lot of high risk deliveries going on. So they simply just don't have the exposure to what normal physiologic birth can look like unless there's a midwifery program or an obstetrician who does this type of work, you know, who's delivering at that hospital. But also just our healthcare systems don't really make this very easy, either the way offices are structured, patient loads are structured, or just even our reimbursement from insurance companies are structured. Um, Physicians, which is 97% of who's delivering babies, are delivering a large volume of patients. And there's definitely a perception that natural birth takes more time than a very medicalized birth, which hasn't been my experience doing it. <laughs> but but there's definitely that perception of, oh, if I, you know, support this mom's birth plan, then she's just going to labor in the hospital for days and nobody has time for that. So, you know, some of it is misperception on the on the part of that the obstetricians. Um, I think there's also a misperception that somehow, which has been a crazy thing for me, that somehow natural birth is more dangerous or that physicians are more susceptible to like litigation suits if they support um, moms who are having natural birth. So, you know, just a lot of different things that I think are going on that are impacting this resistance from both 
you know, providers and hospitals and making it difficult for mom to find those options. Yeah, I, I think you're right. There's a lot that goes into that. I love that you use the term low intervention. I think that's a great term because natural birth, I think, can, can encompass a lot of things, but also it can be confusing of what that means. And I think low intervention sums it up well. And, and also acknowledging that, you know, everyone's I hope going into a birth experience and wanting the best outcome for mom and baby. Like at the end of the day, that's everyone in the room's goal is healthy mom, healthy baby. Um, And I think that maybe there's just often differences. And to your point, probably a lot of them does come from insurance companies or the liability team at the hospital on what they consider the safest option for the mom and the baby. But let's talk about some of the reasons that women might want to consider a lower intervention birth because people might be aware the statistics are not great in the U.S. as far as maternal mortality, infant mortality, and birth complications, C-section rate. For being as advanced of a country as we are, it's actually pretty abysmal, some of the rates related to birth outcomes. So maybe yeah, walk yeah. us through um, just an overview of some of the things women could consider as options when they're approaching a birth experience to be lower intervention and why they'd be worth considering. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, low intervention takes, you know, kind of a wide gamut. You know, I have patients who come to me and their definition of low intervention is just, I don't want to say, I don't want a C-section. Whereas I have other moms where, you know, their definition of natural or low intervention is no medications. Um, some moms that's even means not birthing in a hospital and having an out of hospital birth. So, you know, there's definitely a wide range. But I think some of the reasons that mothers are looking for other options and not necessarily looking for the standard approach is one fear of needing a surgical birth. C-section rates have been pretty steady at 32% for about the last 20 years. I think most women sort of have an intuitive sense that one third of women shouldn't need surgery to deliver their babies. And that C-section rate in our country really changed in a very short time period. It it changed um, from the early 1990s to the early 2000s, roughly 10-year time frame. We went from roughly 18 to 20% up to that 32%. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't like this was a gradual thing. It really was pretty abrupt in the end. When we look at those causes, you can't just account that to demographics or, you know, some mom related effect or even some difference in the training of our care providers. Like it's clearly something in the way we're taking care of women. So I think number one, people are looking for options that don't involve them having surgery so they can get started with uh, their motherhood in a better way. Um, I think mothers are looking for more choices. I think people have just become more aware that they do have choices in healthcare. And so, you know, they're more conscious about what they're putting in their body. They, they want to know what that medication is. They, they will, you know, if we're going to be doing an induction, they want to know what meds they're getting and why. So it's not just sort of the, the, you know, that automatic, oh, the doctor told me so I'm going to do that, you know, and I think that goes in all areas of medicine, but especially obstetrics. And then, you know, I think people really have come to value just the experience of childbirth itself and recognize that there is something really important there. And, you know, something that's not just a physical process, but something that's really emotional and spiritual, and have begun to give that a little more of the honoring it the way that it more should be. 
Yeah, I definitely, I, I know I've heard from many women and myself had those experiences where birth is such a profound experience that shows you maybe parts of yourself that you didn't know were there, or I've heard it said kind of birth is your ultimate reality. And I feel like mm -hmm. many women emerge from birth, especially when they are able to have the birth experience they want with almost this like, oh, wow, I can do anything mentality because yeah. you get to face the intensity of it and come out the other side with the best prize ever. And I think it's a beautiful experience. And I, I love that you also brought up that there's this conception that natural birth can be more dangerous. And I would love for us to kind of tackle maybe some data. Is that actually true? Are there things that make that more or less true that are within a woman's control? And um, I've also always said, I think the best outcomes in medicine happen across the board, not just in obstetrics, but when you have an informed patient who actually has done their research and who's making informed choices, working with a practitioner who's knowledgeable, who supports them to the degree that it's possible and safe. But where does that misconception come from that natural birth can be more dangerous? And is that actually true? Um, I think that misconception comes from the idea that if a mom is declining some interventions, that she's going to be declining all interventions, and including interventions that have been shown to, to improve safety outcomes. So I think that's one of one of the misperceptions, because I don't have a single patient who is like, I don't want any modern medicine. <laughs> I think most people are like, I want some modern medicine. But also, I think it comes from some of the over sort of publicized horror stories of maybe home births gone wrong, or, you know, situations where maybe patients didn't have providers that did a good job of counseling them and informing them, and they didn't really have the tools to make good decisions. And so maybe they did decline interventions that may have helped them um, and may have improved their outcome for their birth. So, and then just simple uh, misunderstanding, you know, really common example that I bring up to providers that I talk to is just fetal monitoring. We don't have fantastic evidence that fetal monitoring alone improves outcome for low risk mothers. You know, we have data that it improves outcomes for high risk mothers, but for low risk mothers, we don't have great data that says that it's any better than just listening to the heartbeat, you know, at specific times during the, the labor pattern. And um, yet there's physicians who believe that if that baby comes off the monitor for the, a second, that something terrible and horrible is going to happen and that it's not safe, it's dangerous to be off the monitor. And so there's a lot of, you know, restricting of ambulation from that or restricting to access to hydrotherapy really because of that fear and the not understanding um, the safety of these different techniques. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, like I said, I think the best outcomes happen when you have informed patients working with doctors who are supportive and also able to help educate the patients. Um, and mm -hmm. as a doula myself, I've very much been in favor of moms being able to choose whatever their birth experience that they want. Even I know moms who have chosen for their own reasons, C-sections, you know, kind of without even mm -hmm. needing them necessarily. And I am fully in support of that. But I think also, especially when it comes to choosing a, a lower intervention birth, that's when women tend to maybe run into more resistance. So what are some ways that women right. can advocate for themselves and work with their doctors? Because I know also I, I've heard doctors get frustrated from patients who are trying to advocate, but maybe not very effectively. And the doctor feels like the woman's kind of being hard to work with as well. What are some ways we can effectively advocate for ourselves? Well, I, I, I somewhat, uh, <laughs> I, I somewhat blame the doctor more in that situation than I blame the patient. 
So, you know, I, I hate to make the patients feel like there's something magical that they need to be doing to effectively communicate with the physician. Like this is our job is to figure out how to effectively communicate with the patients and hear what's important to them and hear what their priorities are. You know, we talk about shared decision-making in medicine and that's a huge piece of it is taking that time to really listen to what your patient's saying, sort of put your own ego aside. I, I, my, my personal feeling is that a lot of this sort of resistance to hearing especially what women have to say in labor comes from a rather paternalistic history of obstetrics of sort of, you know, we know what's best for you. And, you know, don't don't tell me who's trained for 12 plus years to do this job. What's the safest thing in labor? But just because you might know, quote unquote, the safest doesn't mean you necessarily know what's the right decision for your patient, because there's many, many different options. There's very few scenarios where there's truly only one option of care and sort of having enough, uh, you know, humbleness to recognize that and recognize that maybe what you would choose for that woman may not be what she would choose for herself and that you can still offer her a safe outcome that is something that she feels comfortable with. You know, that's that's the art of medicine. That's that's what you're supposed to be doing as a provider. So um, I, I really think it's just creating space for patients. So I, I really I don't put a ton of a ton of pressure on the patient for that. I I really think if a woman's not finding space with her doctor or her midwife for that conversation and feeling like she's, you know, that the physician is resisting that conversation or the midwife's resisting that that conversation. And that's just one of the few times that I'm like, yeah, maybe you really should have a new provider because you should be able to have those conversations. Like at the bare minimum, you should be able to con- talk about your options with your provider. A little bit of a soapbox. <laughs> I think language, to your point, is so important when it comes to that. And I remember my first birth was with a doctor in a hospital. And then I was with midwives in a hospital. And I remember the difference in having been through a birth with the doctor. And then when I got to the midwives asking questions and I would be like, well, will you let me do this? And will I be allowed to do this? And the midwife mm-hmm. telling me mm-hmm. it's your birth. You don't, you're not yeah. ready to ask my permission. Yeah. I'm not allowing you. You're paying me and I'm going to inform you of, if I think something's not safe, but it's at the end of the day, your choice. And that was such a profound moment for me that really helped me advocate for myself later on. Um, especially my last two were both breach. And I, with my, my number five at my 37 week appointment was told, we're not going to let you deliver naturally. And I said, well, then you're fired. And I walked out of the, and then I was like, oh no, I'm going to find someone to help catch this baby. Pretty quick." Um, but it ended up working out really, really well. And I think you're right. It makes sense. You know, doctors go through a lot of education to get to that point and certainly not to diminish that at all. They do have very specific knowledge that's amazingly helpful, but I also very much believe in a woman's knowledge of her own body. And I've seen it play out as a doula many times, like a mom who was there with her fifth baby and they told her she was four centimeters. And then 10 minutes later, she's like, I'm pushing. And they're like, no, honey, you're not pushing. And she starts doing the like, and I'm like, she knows her body. She's pushing with her. You think she should be or not? She is. But let's maybe go through the checklist of some of the common ones that come up, because I know, like you mentioned, monitoring, for instance, in a hospital Mm -hmm, being very mm -hmm. common practice and maybe not having as much evidence behind it as we think. But that's one thing that often keeps women in a bed 
not moving around, which can also have an effect on the outcome of labor. If women aren't allowed to move around, that can change labor progression. Same thing with like women are often told they can't eat or drink in a hospital setting. Maybe take us through some of those common practices. And if like, for instance, I've advocated for myself in a hospital and said, you know, thank you for your advice. I'm going to choose to eat. I know that there's a low risk of me aspirating this if I did need to be put under anesthesia and I am going to choose to nourish myself so that I can hopefully have a natural birth. But what are some of those areas that women actually maybe have a choice, but maybe don't know they have a choice if they're just being told in a hospital setting, you're not allowed to do this? Yeah. So another common one is IVs. Um, so a lot of moms think when they come in, they have to have an IV placed automatically. And they may not know that they can decline that or they can choose to have a HEPLOP IV instead. Other things would be the ability just to get out of bed and move and that they're not, that they don't necessarily have to labor in the bed, that they can deliver in other positions, that they can, as you mentioned, eat drink and that the risks associated with that are very, very low. And then, you know, I think some of the bigger things like C-sections, inductions, a lot of times, as you mentioned, these are presented to women as if there is no choice, as just we are going to do this. And a lot of women don't realize that that is a discussion that they can have with their provider, particularly like if they've had a previous C-section, it's a discussion they can have of whether or not they want another C-section. Yeah, I've had that experience as well. I never in my head thought I would have a C-section because I was very into natural birth. And even I would skip over the chapters in birth books about C-sections because I was like, I'm never going to have one of those. And then my third, I had placenta previa that despite ultrasounds was not mm -hmm. caught and ended up with an emergency C-section. And I realized I had no knowledge related to C-sections because I had just skipped over that entire section of everything I'd ever read about pregnancy. And then after that was told, well, you know, now you have to keep having C-sections. And questioned it and found a provider who was like, absolutely not. You had two vaginal births pre-C-section, there's absolutely no reason you can't be back from here on out. But I think a lot of women are told that, like, no, once a C-section, always a C-section, which at least from my research after the data doesn't actually support that at all. Like short of certain circumstances that make no, it more no. dangerous, it actually seems like it's safer on average for most women to have a VBAC versus another C-section. Yeah. I, after a mom's had a C-section, the best outcomes are for mom and baby are for a vaginal delivery. And I know that there's a lot yeah, of yeah. reasons for that as well. There's a lot of factors that go into it. I did a lot of research and was fascinated by the microbial aspect of birth and that microbiota transfer. And I feel like the more we learn about gut health, we're learning a lot of that seeding happens during the birth process. So a C-section, a baby's missing that window, which certainly there are things you can do like swabbing to help create that when you do need a C-section. But can you maybe explain that kind of microbial transfer process that happens during birth that you might not have if you have a C-section unless you would kind of intentionally do that? So when a mom has a vaginal delivery and the baby's coming down through the vaginal canal, it's passing through that that vaginal flora where, you know, we all have bacteria in our vagina and our gut. And that that bacteria is a complex combination of a bunch of different flora lines that you can't necessarily just like make up after the fact. And we know that by the baby passing through that, 
vaginal canal. And it's not just like that getting on their skin. It's actually the baby swallowing that that fluid that has that flora in it that is part of the process so like while we can try to do some things after the fact to you know to help the cause like with the swabbing and that sort of thing it's not the same thing as that baby spending you know an hour or two in the vaginal canal swallowing the fluid during the birth process that is rich with that flora and that flora getting deep into the gut. So, you know, I I often tell my patients, like, no matter what we talk about, we're nowhere uh, near as good as nature at creating the situations of the labor process. Yes, we can make contractions with Pitocin, but they're not the same contractions as your natural oxytocin produces. Yes, we can you know, open up a cervix and get it ripened, but we're not nearly as good at doing that as you are. Um, you know, we can help you deliver a baby in different positions when you're on your back, but you're probably going to do a lot better job at getting that baby out if you're able to move and do it sort of intuitively and get into the positions that's right for you and for your baby and how that baby's oriented in your pelvis. So, you know, this is just, I think, another example of you know, nature often knows best, you know, yes, sometimes there are good indications to do a C-section and life-saving indications for doing a C-section. But if they're not truly necessary, then we're missing out on a whole lot of good things um, that we can't really make up for after the fact. And sometimes you often hear the term kind of cascade of interventions and how certain things can lead to further intervention because of some of those factors you just mentioned. If women aren't moving, baby can have a harder time moving down in the pelvis, et cetera. Um, If women aren't eating, they can get tired and their fatigue can actually be the reason that they're not progressing, things like that. So um, obviously with the note that everything is personalized and every labor progresses differently, what are some of the factors that women can do that will help put those odds in their favor when it comes to having a lower intervention birth? So I always tell my patients that the foundation of a low intervention birth actually starts during pregnancy because the the number one predictor of whether or not a patient is going to have a low intervention birth is whether or not she's able to start labor spontaneously versus have an induction. 60% of first-time moms in our country are induced, which is just a crazy number. And once we do an induction, basically so many components of a low intervention birth are immediately put out the window because of just the the cascade of interventions that we have to do to make an induction safe. And why do I say that that the foundations of a spontaneous labor start in pregnancy? Because many of the indications for induction are our lifestyle factors. So it's things like diabetes, hypertension, it's, you know, labor, it's pregnancies going late, things like that. So I really encourage patients to really focus on a good, well-rounded diet in pregnancy that reduces the risk of diabetes, that helps promote good gut bacteria and vaginal flora, which, you know, again, we don't have tons of evidence for, but a growing body of evidence to say that this may reduce the risk of things like premature rupture of membranes and uh, infections that could ascend up into the uterus. We exercise we know reduces excess weight gain in pregnancy it helps keep a mother strong and gives her the tools to you know stay mobile both throughout her pregnancy and during her labor so again you know creating that good foundation of fetal positioning and 
good foundation of um, pelvic relaxation and openness to help facilitate her early her her labor process. So I think that's the first thing that a mom can do. And then second thing is just really good training um, for her labor. You know, I think of labor and delivery, like climbing a mountain or a marathon. You know, there are definitely people who are like, I'm going to go do that today and they're successful, but that's not the majority of people. The majority of people, if you don't train and you don't prepare, you're not going to be very successful at something that's so physically demanding and so mentally demanding. And so, you know, taking good childbirth preparation and really you know, doing some intense thorough preparation for that labor and delivery process, again, is going to set the foundation that you don't, you know, get that epidural too early or need other medications because once you choose to get an epidural, now you need continuous monitoring. Now you need IV fluids. Now you are restricted to the bed. So, you know, just to your point, you know, one one intervention tends to beget another. You know, we see a really high association between epidural use and Pitocin in both directions. You know, Pitocin leads to epidurals and epidurals often lead to Pitocin. So, you know, trying to kind of set the stage for minimizing those needs for those interventions um, is the best thing a mom can do. And we see that pattern for moms who prepare that way and come into labor that way in lower lower intervention rates, lower section rates, and just better birth outcomes and more moms who feel better about their birth process as well. Yeah. And I'd love to also touch on the home birth versus hospital birth kind of debate. Um, I actually was part of a team that helped lobby to make home birth legal in Kentucky, which is ironic to me that Kentucky of all places, home birth was illegal for a long time. Um, and I remember sitting in one of those committee meetings with the medical committee and one of the OBs, a male OB who's probably six, in his 60s on the committee and him saying like, women can't be trusted to make these decisions. And I think that like, unfortunately, there are people within the industry that kind of have that prevailing attitude. But those people that yeah, we encounter yeah. there, they certainly had the mindset that home birth was going to be very dangerous and babies were going to die all over the place. And certainly the data I've seen doesn't seem to support that. But I know that many women have some fear around the idea of home birth because they have heard a lot of things like that. So let's talk about home birth versus hospital birth and what the statistics say, what you know as a provider and, and what advice you'd give women there. Yeah, so the home birth versus hospital birth is kind of uh, is is a challenging question and a challenging debate in the United States because we don't have a standardized system in the U.S. So there, there's a lot of variation in, one, the care providers and also the systems for integrating moms who may need a higher level of care during a home birth back into the hospital system. So we don't see the same rates in the United States for home birth in terms of safety as we see, for example, in Europe, where home birth is very well integrated into the system. So it's, what we know is that home birth can be very safe with well-trained providers and with providers that are integrated into the medical system, meaning that there's a way for those providers to reach out to higher level of care if they need to, and a way for those providers to facilitate 
ready transfer into hospital if that's necessary. So, you know, I, what I think the data shows, you know, when we look at the U.S. data versus other uh, versus other countries, is that it's not about the location. It's about the teams and the systems that are in place to take care of moms and provide and provide that care. And we sort of prove that with our birth centers because they're kind of a, a middle of the road. So our birth centers in the United States have very comparable outcomes to hospital. And why? Because in order to be licensed as a birth center, you have to have certain standards of you know, the providers in your centers have to have certain standards of training. There has to be integration. You know, for example, birth center, there needs to be some collaboration with an obstetrician. There needs to be some plan for transfer to hospital. And we see very good rates with our birth centers. So we know home birth can be equally safe because there's not a substantial difference between a home birth and a birth center birth in terms of resources and facilities. It's just that connection to a higher level of care if it's necessary, and and making sure that the patients we're having home births are risk appropriate for those home births. So it, it's a really it's a really interesting problem. Unfortunately, the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology has kind of come down really hard against home birth and made really strong statements against home birth. And that has almost led to an inability to look for solutions to make home birth better and safer in this country, despite the large number of patients who want home birth and want that as an option. So, you know, it's kind of similar to, you know, what often happens in hospitals, like sort of, we don't feel comfortable with this. We feel like this isn't the best option. And so we're just going to say no instead of looking for solutions to offer this option in a better, safer way. So, you know, it's really sort of short-sighted and, you know, quite literally, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, I recently had a conversation with my cousin about this. Actually, she lives in London and she had almost the exact opposite of her first birth experience where home birth was encouraged and you're given a whole team of midwives mm-hmm. who come to your house. They do a ton of education and support and they do talk to them about nutrition and movement and all these factors and they do screen them as well. And, you know, if there's a reason they can't deliver at home, they have appropriate care in hospitals as well. But the standard mm-hmm. of care, the preferred care is home birth, which is like you said, a yep, huge yep. drastic difference from here. And their rates in home birth are very good because that's what they support and that's what the research is around. This episode is brought to you by Wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end, which is my line of non-toxic, family-focused personal care products, including hair care, oral care, and now deodorant. At my house, the kids' toothbrushes and the kids' strawberry toothpaste are by far the favorites. The toothbrushes come in a three-pack of fun colors, which makes it easy for my kids to know which toothbrush is whose. The strawberry toothpaste tastes great, so there aren't any fights about teeth brushing in my house. And I love that it's formulated around something called hydroxyapatite, which is a naturally occurring mineral found in tooth enamel. All of our toothpaste use only EWG-verified safe ingredients, are free of toxins, and are packed with ingredients that naturally support the oral microbiome for stronger, healthier, and whiter teeth naturally. We also have a natural whitening mineral toothpaste and a charcoal toothpaste, as well as floss and toothbrushes for adults. Check out these and all of our products at wellness.com. That's W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com. This podcast is brought to you by 
Hiya Health, that's H-I-Y-A. Typical children's vitamins are basically candy disguised. They're filled with as much as two teaspoons of sugar, unhealthy chemicals, and other gummy junk that kids really don't need. And Haya fills the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide full body nourishment with a yummy taste that kids love and without the junk. Like I said, most children's vitamins have up to five grams of sugar and they can actually cause a variety of health issues. But Haya is made with zero sugar and zero gummy junk, yet it tastes great and is perfect even for picky eaters. It's manufactured in the USA with globally sourced ingredients that are each selected for optimal bioavailability and absorption. Haya arrives straight to your door on a pediatrician recommended schedule. Your first month comes with a reusable glass bottle that your kids can personalize with stickers. And every month after, Haya sends a no plastic refill pouch of fresh vitamins, which means Haya isn't just good for your kids, it's also good for the environment. Check it out and save on your first month by going to hayahealth.com slash wellnessmama. That's H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash wellnessmama. You use the term high risk, which I think is another important one to define because I think many women are told they're high risk and maybe not even given a whole lot of explanation as to why. And there's a whole lot of things that seem to fall under this umbrella of high risk, whether it be being over 35 or multiples or having high blood pressure. Like there's so many things that seem to fit under that umbrella. What does it actually mean to be high risk? And are we overusing that term? And if a mother is high risk, is she automatically excluded from these other options of lower intervention birth? So, I mean, high risk is definitely an over utilized term. And it's also, as we mentioned, a very poorly defined term. So there are certainly conditions that put a mother at larger risk during pregnancy that if everything goes well, may not impact her labor at all. And she may be actually fairly low risk for labor, but yet still for a lot of women restrict their options. Um, There's conditions that may not be at risk A mom may not have a significant risk during the pregnancy, but then suddenly develops risk during the labor. So I I think just this sort of universal, you know, put a stamp on a woman's head saying you're high risk and then sort of use that to mandate inductions, mandate C-sections and not give offer her choices is unfortunately actually leading a lot of women who probably would be more appropriate to deliver in hospital under either the care of midwives or obstetricians in hospital to look for birthing options outside of hospital because they're just not being offered choices in hospital that are that are low intervention, which is a real shame. So in terms of things that are legitimately high risk, um, you know, certainly moms who've had a history of a previous, you know, poor outcome in a previous pregnancy. So something like, you know, previous premature delivery, a previous baby, a previous stillbirth, a, you know, history of significant preeclampsia or low birth weight or something that indicated significant what we'd call placental insufficiency, where the placenta wasn't growing and feeding the baby the way that it should have. Those would all be significant risk factors for the subsequent pregnancy. Or if mom has a significant medical condition, you know, you know, some sort of heart disease, significant asthma, you know, there, there's a there's a very long list. And those are things that we know, you know, right at the beginning of the pregnancy, right? You know, because it's from her history. 
Um, and then there's things that develop during the pregnancy that can be higher risk for mom, things like gestational diabetes, hypertension, and those usually fall more in the moderate risk category. So yes, they're a higher risk for certain complications, but most moms will go on to have healthy births and healthy outcomes with those conditions. But, you know, a lot of moms with kind of even more of those moderate um, risk conditions are encouraged to have C-sections, encouraged to have inductions, you know, pretty early on and um, not, not necessarily given a lot of choice or a lot of alternative to, to managing those conditions. So how do you think we as a country can kind of start to address some of these problems? Like what's needed to actually bring more of this level of care and low intervention birth into hospitals so that women do have those options? How do we actually change kind of the standard of care there? So it's challenging, (laughs) Um, but I, I definitely think one of the ways we start doing it is by encouraging more education in this area, both among obstetricians and our nursing staff. And I think that's starting to happen a little bit um, as hospitals are realizing they need to lower their C-section rates and, you know, improve some of these outcomes, especially as insurers are beginning to um, tie reimbursements to lower C-section rates. We're seeing a, a, a uh, renewed interest in, in looking at different ways we can lower C-section rates. But I think it's more than just teaching physicians, you know, some, you know, how to use a peanut ball, for example. I think it's also about changing our, our philosophy towards birth and, and really gaining exposure to a more holistic viewpoint towards towards pregnancy and towards labor and delivery. And, and I really think that's just with exposure to a more midwifery mindset towards uh, care. And that takes credentialing midwives in hospitals and having an active midwifery program in hospitals, including these big level three hospitals where the majority of OBGYN residents are training so that they can see, no, this model of care is safe. This model of care often produces better outcomes than than we're producing. And they begin to see it done a different way and, and see that as a normal part of caring for women so that it doesn't just seem like this strange thing that's done, you know, sort of on the fringes of, of uh, the medical system. And you're so passionate about this. You actually have written a book about natural birth. And I would love for you to talk about that, what your goal is with the book. I think it's, I got to check it out and it's awesome, but I think it solves a lot of these problems we're talking about because it's the education and you can speak to both sides and to that physician side that's so important as well. Yeah, so I I wrote this book in response to actually a lot of pushback that I received in my various hospitals in supporting moms who had natural birth plans. You know, I would have moms come in with, you know, with their birth plans and wanting to ambulate, wanting to use the showers and those sorts of things. And, you know, just nurses not feeling comfortable, some of the other doctors not feeling comfortable. And they'd be like, well, what's the evidence that showed this was safe? And so I'd go and I'd pull all the research and I'd be like, here, here's the evidence, here's the research articles. And so I really came to realize that there was sort of a lack of one resource to show that, you know, all the the evidence for all the various points of a natural birth plan. So that was the point of the book I wrote, kind of, you know, a 
a guide, so to speak, to that natural birth plan that really showed the evidence and really attempted to explain, you know, both to patients and to their providers of, hey, why is this thing that a woman's asking for? Why is why does it matter to her? Why is it a good thing? You know, what if there's any concerns about it? What are they? And, you know, is it still something, is it reasonable to offer? Should we be supporting it? And, you know, there really, there really isn't a whole heck of a lot in the natural birth plan that I could find any evidence to say, hey, this is not a good idea. They're, they're really, the only thing that I could say there was not evidence for was, I think, placental encapsulation. That's the only thing that I didn't find any, any evidence in support of. <laughs> but pretty much every other thing <laughs> there was, there was solid support for in the, in, in our own medical literature. So, you know, I think it was just sort of, a, you know, a hope to be a wake up call and to give a tool to patients who wanted um, more of a scientific understanding of these things and wanted to have, you know, some scientific tools to sort of go to their providers and say, hey, yeah, this is legit. This has evidence. This is the evidence. I am informed. And and this is what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, you you don't you don't get to not allow me. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's an important phrase. You don't get to not allow me. And I often ask, what are things that people don't know or understand about your particular area of expertise and your answers to this were so good. We, I know we've touched a little bit on some of them, but maybe walk us through any other kind of misconceptions or things people don't know and understand when it comes to birth. Oh gosh, I'm now forgetting what my what my uh, what my answers were. <laughs> but um, no, I think one of the one of the big misperceptions is that that is what I alluded to that somehow that. The idea that a controlled or, you know, medicalized birth is safer, uh, you know, that's a misperception in the medical community. You know, I, I, I always, you know, lost my mind in one of my previous hospitals because they had a longer consent form to use the labor tub than the consent form to be induced and have a C-section. Um, you know, more things for the mom to check, which was just crazy to me. I'm like, surely surgery is higher risk than a bathtub. Um, but, you know, it just kind of shows where their priorities were. But I think another, um, you know, misperception for women is that they don't have a say, that they somehow, you know, give up their autonomy when when they become pregnant, which, you know, yes, I know in today's climate, maybe there's some people who are feeling that way. But on labor and delivery, you still you you can consent, you you have informed consent, and you have the right to informed consent. And you deserve that right to make these decisions. And, you know, the, a woman's labor and delivery experience matters. And it really is the foundation of her motherhood. You know, I use that phrase a lot. You know, it's 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 a couple's first act of parenting. And so it matters how it starts. It's important. So, you know, we need we need to value it and we need to put more value and we need a we need a higher bar than just did everyone make it out alive. We need a higher bar than that. I completely agree. I know many women have birth experiences that they then later have to work through because it does really profoundly affect you and it can have a negative effect on the mom as well. And that's an important aspect of motherhood is mom's mental health and mom's ability to show up as a mom. So I love that you are 
awareness to this and educating from a physician's perspective, I think that's going to really help to change the landscape. And I think that combined with women educating themselves and making informed choices and being able to stand up for themselves and advocate for themselves before, during, and after birth, I'm hopeful that we'll start to see some of these statistics change. And as we get to the end of our time, another question I love to ask is if there is a book or number of books that have had a profound impact on you, and if so, what they are and why. So, you know, I... I'm an English lit major, so I read lots and lots of books, <laughs> and lots of lots of books are important to me personally. But um, professionally, one book that had a really big influence on me, which I read very soon after I completed residency, was Jennifer Block's book Pushed, um, which, if you haven't read it, is just a really, really amazing um, overview of sort of what's going on in the American maternity system. And, you know, I don't, and and I feel like, you know, while some obstetricians have criticized it as being, you know, biased or anti-medical, I didn't see it that way. I I actually saw it as a very um, unbiased, just, you know, reflective view at this very difficult situation where everyone is pushed and and everyone's kind of at the mercy of this system that really does need to be rethought and where that we really do need to reevaluate so that we can provide better care to women. So I thought it was a a beautiful, um, you know, very thorough look at that and really, you know, gave me a huge lot, huge amount of inspiration to, you know, try to do maternity care different in my own practice. And interestingly, she had a rotated at the hospital where I did my residency. She shadowed and interviewed doctors, and that was the hospital she talked about in her book. And I had gone through four years of residency, and no one mentioned that. And I was just like dumbfounded. I'm like, how is it that we're like featured in a book about maternity care that has sold millions of copies, and no one has discussed it? I just couldn't believe it. It was great. Oh, wow. I echo the recommendation of that book. That was, I think I read when I was pregnant with my second and it definitely helped me think through things a lot differently. She does a great job like you do of shedding light on the actual reality of what's going on and how women can make better choices. And I'm very grateful for people like both of you who are doing this work and day-to-day helping so many women. Um, And very, very grateful for your time. Thank you so much for being here. I know how busy you are and I'm so glad we got to chat. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening and sharing your most valuable resources, your time, your energy, and your attention with us today. We're both so grateful that you did, and I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time, and thanks, as always, for listening.